I do thank those people who are um, shoveling all this snow. You're brave folks here. Uh, you must be the good drivers of, of Sheridan, Wyoming, <laughs> that can get here through this. Um, wow. I'm amazed at how many of you came. I thought, oh, no one's going to show up today. Like, like Stephanie said, you could have been all alone. I could have been speaking to myself here today. <laughs> but you all made it. So thank you for the effort you, you expended to get here. As you look on the, on the screen there, we're starting a new series. This next series is going to take us through the last week of Jesus' life. If any of you have a, a, a Roman Catholic background or a, a background of many other denominations, you'll know that this past week, the period of time called Lent began. Lent is, is a very, very old tradition in the church by which people prepare themselves for Good Friday and then ultimately for Easter. I don't know if you know, but in our society today, people are getting rid of Good Friday. Christians, I mean. The focus is on Easter, and Easter, of course, is the great focus. It is the centerpiece of our faith as Christians. However, without Good Friday, Easter doesn't mean anything. That somebody lived on this earth and went up to heaven and walked out of a grave, that's really nice, sweet. But if that wasn't the cross, if God's wrath was not poured out on him and he paid the price for our sins, Easter really doesn't have any meaning for us. And interestingly, in our society today, we're skipping Good Friday, just focusing on Easter. Oh, everyone loves the love of God. Of course we do. But that is not the only facet of God's character. He's also just. He's also holy. He's also righteous. He's also sinless. And the beauty of the cross is the cross pulls together both of the love and the justice of God perfectly. Nothing else on earth could ever do it. And so over the next number of weeks, we're going to focus each week on the next day of the final week of the life of Jesus. Now, if you know your, the Gospels at all, you might know that the Gospel of John, almost half of that entire Gospel is just devoted to the last week of Jesus' life. Because the last week of Jesus' life is so incredibly important that that is the focus of all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and especially the Gospel of John. You might not know what all takes place, but if you look at this slide very quickly, you can see that the Bible records for us clearly what happened on every day of the last week of Jesus' life, except for Saturday because, of course, he was in the grave, and nothing specifically happened with Jesus that particular day. And so this Sunday, we're going to start on Sunday, the one you see to the far left. That is what we, today know, what we know today as Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry. But there was more that went on that day that you might not know about. And then each week, we're going to follow the timeline of Holy Week, week by week here at First Baptist Church. And this is what it's going to look like. This Sunday, we're going to focus on Palm Sunday. It's the date that you all know when Jesus entered into Jerusalem. And some of the very things we sang this morning were the words that are taken from the triumphal entry of Jesus. Then next week, Lord willing, we're going to turn to what I'm going to call Melancholy Monday. It's a very sad day. It's the day in which Jesus cleanses the temple, curses the fig tree, and it's a pretty sad day. He's rather melancholy this day. And we'll see what happened next week on Monday. Then the following week, we're going to turn to what is easily called Testy Tuesday. 
because now the, the people who oppose him are going to riddle him with the most difficult tests you can imagine, and he gets an A++ on every one of them, and then he turns the tables and gives them a test, and they got an F-, minus, all of them. But it's a tested day of tests, and Jesus is brilliant. Wednesday is wacky. Called Wacky Wednesday, of course, that's the name of a book, maybe a children's book. I read it to my children, and it's a Wacky Wednesday. Almost everyone does the wrong thing on that day, and we'll see what Wacky Wednesday looks like. Then Thursday is, of course, called Maundy Thursday, named after what, uh, the, um, what Jesus did in the upper room where he washed the disciples' feet, and Jesus gave that incredible um, prayer at the end of Maundy Thursday. And then Good Friday is Good Friday. And we're planning here at First Baptist Church this year on Good Friday to have a Good Friday service in the evening. And it's going to be hopefully a very sad day. I hope if you come, and I hope you will come, I hope you cry a lot, because sin is horrible. And we've lost our sense of sin in this culture, which is horrible because when you lose your sense of sin, Grace doesn't mean that much. When you know how much you've sinned and you know who you are, grace is amazing. And that's what we'll look at, Good Friday. And then, of course, all of that is pointing to the greatest of all, the centerpiece of Christianity, the linchpin of all Christianity. As the Apostle Paul says, if Christ be not raised from the dead, all that we believe in is nonsense. But if Christ is raised from the dead, everything makes sense, and he is our Lord and our Savior. So that's what we hope to do in the weeks ahead. Now, today, we're going to look at the first day, which is called Palm Sunday, but there's more that took place on Palm Sunday than just this Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. Actually, in the, the Jewish rendering of time, days don't begin as our days do at midnight, and go till the next day at midnight. Theirs began at sundown and went to sundown the next day. So for this Sunday, which we're going to call Palm Sunday, it actually began on Saturday night. That's how the Jews reckoned time, and it goes till sundown on Sunday. All of the events on this particular day are going to focus on one incredibly important question. And that question is going to be, who in the world is Jesus? Jesus, of course, has now been on this earth for some 33 years. Over the last, the previous three years, he's been with his disciples every day. He's had huge crowds. He's had one-on-ones. He's been very, very open in public. And now, in the last week of his life, the first question that you're going to see people having to answer is, who is Jesus? And in fact... This is a question that every human being will one day have to answer for ourselves as well. Who is this Jesus? And we're going to find several responses in our text of Scripture today. Now, speaking of our text of Scripture today, I'm going to read it for you. I'm going to read just one of the four Gospels. This event, called Palm Sunday, is recorded in all four Gospels. I'm going to read right now from the Gospel of Luke, which is one of the most, one of the fullest uh, accounts of it. I'm going to read Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. Listen as I read the Word of God. After Jesus had said this, 
he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Tell him, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked him, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came to the place near where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praising God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, and he wept over it. And he said, If you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now is hidden from your eyes, the days will come when you enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Welcome to what is called Palm Sunday. Now, Palm Sunday began, as I said to you before, on what we would call Saturday night. And a very important event started to take not only Saturday night, but before Saturday. Because actually the events of Palm Sunday begin in the week before Palm Sunday because the religious leaders of Israel were having some meetings. And in these meetings, it came, became very, very clear that Jesus was a threat of major proportions, and he had to be dealt with. Now, as you may know, this week that we call Palm Sunday was a week in which people from all over the world who were Jewish descended on Jerusalem. It's for the Passover feast. The population of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus was roughly 50,000 people. I think that's roughly Casper, if I'm not mistaken. But when the Passover feast took place, the, the amount of people in Jerusalem swelled to many hundreds of thousands, probably half a million people. So the city was just inundated everywhere with huge crowds of people. It can you imagine a city? In, well, it happened. It happened this last year with the eclipse. And if you were on the road, you know what happened. That's exactly what happened. The population of Wyoming swelled probably by 10 times because people came here to watch the eclipse. That's what Jerusalem was like for the Passover. Now, the Jewish leaders who are responsible not only for the religious life of the Jewish people, but also the political life, they were there to make sure things kept peaceful because if they didn't, the Romans would swoop in and they would be in trouble. So the religious leaders had a very strong vested interest to make sure that the Passover was peaceful. 
And oftentimes, when you get big crowds of people, any place, you always worry about crowd control. And so the priests had a meeting. And in their meeting, this is what happened. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary, that's Mary, the sister of Lazarus and the sister of Martha, and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. Just a couple of weeks before this, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, and the Jewish people, seeing a man who had been dead and starting to stink, walk out of a grave, they are starting to think, Whoa, who is this guy? And they're starting to believe in Jesus. Now that's a problem. That's a big problem if you are the religious authorities and you have decided that this Jesus is a fraud. Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. The chief priests are Sadducees, and then you're the Pharisees. Those are the religious leaders. The chief priests were in charge of the temple. The Pharisees were in charge of the synagogues. They called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. That's their supreme court. One of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. Now, this is typical of the Sadducees' behavior. He's speaking to his fellow comrades, some of them who are showing some interest in Jesus. And he says, you are stupid. Don't you realize that you're politicians? You've got to be pragmatists. What do you think is better, for one person to die or for our whole nation and our way of life to be eliminated? Duh. The man, if people follow this man, do you know what that means for us? We're done. There's no more synagogues. There's no more temple. And the Romans will come in and sweep in and they'll destroy everything. Don't you realize that we are vulnerable politically? So here's our solution. It's simple. Kill him. And so what did they do? They put the word out on the street that if anyone saw Jesus, they were to report Jesus to them so they could arrest him. That was the word. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Why? Political expedience and to cover their own tail. Here's the, the, but the priest, chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. So they made the decision they're going to kill him. And now they put out the word that Jesus is to be arrested. Now you want to know how far they went with that? So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of Lazarus, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. So they decided not only were they going to kill Jesus, but they were going to kill Lazarus as well. They're going to get rid of the perpetrator, that's Jesus, and they're going to get rid of the evidence, that's Lazarus. Now these are your religious leaders. And by the way, 
When religious leaders or any kind of leaders feel threatened, they respond in ways that are oftentimes very, very evil because unfortunately, almost all religious leaders as well as all leaders are basically pragmatists. Once you get power, you will do anything you can to hold on to your power. And when someone threatens your power, you will try to get rid of them and any evidence that supports them. So this is their decision. And it's still happening today. Obviously, look at our country and the rest of the countries of the world. So that was their decision. So here's the first response to Jesus that we find. The first response is the response of the religious leaders. They saw Jesus as a major threat to their worldview, to their lifestyle, to their religion, to their power, to their prestige, to their money. And they decided that the best course of action was to eliminate him. Now, we have people in our world today, in our society today, and there really are not too many of these, but there are people in our society today who are majorly threatened by Jesus. How do we know? Because they make statements that are inflammatory and incredibly antagonistic to Jesus. And when you hear people make statements like that that are inflammatory, and they may be in your class if you're a teacher. They may be some of your coworkers. They may be people we see in the media. When they make statements that are incredibly antagonistic to Jesus, you know there's something going on inside of them that's been threatened. Think of it this way. If somebody who's antagonistic to Jesus, they don't believe in Jesus, they think that I... Tom Hovestall, who believes in Jesus, Tom believes in Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. Now, there are some people, there are many people in our society today who believe our faith in Jesus is the equivalent of believing in Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. Now, if you thought I believe in Santa Claus, would you try to kill me? If you believe that I think that I, uh, that I believe that, um, that in the Easter Bunny, would you kill me? Is there any person on the face of this earth today who came to me and, and said, do you believe in Santa Claus? And I go, yes, I do. They try to kill me. There's not one. There's not a single person. What would you do if you thought that I believed in Santa Claus? You'd simply pity me. You'd say, <laughs> you're stupid. You're really stupid, but uh, no one would want to kill you. If, if you thought, so do you see the antagonists? Because many of them think our belief in Jesus is no different than Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. But why would they want to kill somebody for believing in Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny? There's something more going on. There's something deeply, deeply inside of them threatened. And so it was with the religious leaders. Same in our world today. There are people who would want to kill us for believing in Jesus. But it's, it's not... But why would they do that? They must be deeply threatened by Jesus. So here's our first reaction. The first reaction is one of homicidal threat. They want to kill him. Because my way is better. Well, next we're going to encounter Saturday night an amazing woman. Her name is Mary of Bethany. Mary of Bethany is the, the sister of Lazarus and of Martha. We've met them before in the Gospel of Luke. This, this event of the anointing of Jesus is recorded in all four Gospels, but it seems on different occasions and some of the details are different. 
So many scholars believe that there are actually two anointings. This anointing took place at the home of someone named Simon the leper, probably someone that Jesus had healed. But the Bible records for us that Mary and Lazarus and Martha were present there. In fact, Mary was helping to serve the meal. Here's what the scriptures say. Six days before Passover, now you get your time frame, six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, that's an extract and oil from a plant, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, that, that's actually a, a quite a, unusual. First of all, this nard is very, very expensive. It would have cost many, many months' worth of work for a person in that society. It was, a, it was a, an ointment that was typically used to put on the bodies when a person died because when a person died there, they didn't embalm them, but when they died, quickly after their death, they would start to smell because they would decompose. And nard was used to, to cut the smell, to give a pleasant smell rather than the bad smell of a decaying body. Now, what this woman did then is she took this nard and poured it on Jesus' feet. And that was not normal because typically if they used nard with living people, they poured it on their head, not their feet. And then she takes, instead of a towel, she takes her hair. But in that society, if you know that a person, a woman, does not normally take her hair out of the covering for her hair. She took her hair out and she used her hair to wipe his feet. And typically... Friends did not do this. Only servants did this work. And so here's Mary taking this expensive ointment, putting it on Jesus' feet and wiping her, his feet with her hair. I mean, that's it's an incredible act of devotion. Well, leave her alone, Jesus replied. Why? To whom? Well, we're going to find a little bit later that Judas is going to enter the scene here. Judas now is going to criticize Mary for what she did. And Jesus is going to respond to Judas. Leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. By the way, some people say, well, Jesus doesn't care about the poor. Are you joking? Jesus himself was poor. He had nothing. All he owned in this world was the clothes on his back, not one other thing that we know of. He came from a poor background, and verse after verse after verse, scores of them talk about Jesus' care for the poor. But there is something more important than caring for the poor. It's worshiping Jesus. And he knew that. We'll come back to Judas in a moment. So what was Mary's reaction? Costly devotion. Here, Mary was the one, only one in the room who really knew who Jesus was, who really took seriously the, the statements that Jesus had made time after time that he was going to be killed and he would rise again. She took it as if it was true. And she showed by not only the devotion of her money, but her time, her hair, her humility, that she was committed to Jesus. Wow. 
She's the one that we want to emulate more than any of the others. Well, as I said, there was another person who entered into the scene now. This is Judas. We're going to spend a day, a few weeks from now, focusing on Judas because on Wednesday, Wacky Wednesday, he's the main man of that day. But Judas now is in this room where Mary has just taken off her, her hair and washed Jesus' feet, and he doesn't like what he sees. Here's what he said. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Now, by the way, if you look at the other Gospels that record this, it indicates that some of, if not the all of the other disciples, agreed with Judas. So he's not the only bad guy in the room. They too saw what this woman had done, Mary, and said, Hey, Mary, you made a mistake. And so now Judas confronts Jesus. Say, hey, Jesus, um, you need some correction here. Well, let's see what Jesus says. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As the keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself with what was put into it. Now, Judas, as you know, was one that was specially selected by Jesus to be one of the 12. He was discipled by Jesus for a period of three years. He saw what Jesus did. He, he heard what Jesus said. He knew what Jesus was like in many, many ways. But some point along that way, Judas, who was probably the most trusted of all the disciples because he kept the money, he started to steal. Now, what happens when you are starting to do things that are wrong and you don't want anyone else to know and no one else did know except for Jesus? Well, what do you do? How do you respond to that? Well, either you can come clean or you can act like you're real pious. Now, here's a man whose conscience is very, very dirty, coming off as if he cares for the poor. The guy's a, he's a hypocrite. Now, does Jesus out him? No. Jesus is going to do that later in the week, but he doesn't do it yet. So his reaction was a reaction of someone that was spurious. That means it's false. And by the way, there are many people in our society today who uh, are sinning, and we know we're sinning, but because we have a, a conscience that is not clean, the main response to a conscience that is not clean is you compensate. You don't admit that you're stealing. Judas right there could have said, hey, Jesus, um, uh, there's a little problem here. I've been, uh, I've been stealing. He didn't say that. He said, oh, oh, Jesus, we should have put that money in the bag. We could have helped some poor people. You'll often find that when we, our consciences are dirty, we will compensate. We might even go off and start, you know, join the, 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 a group to help the poor or to go for XYZ's rights. Why? Because we feel dirty. That's what Judas did. His devotion to Jesus was spurious. It was not true. He now thought he could correct Jesus because Jesus didn't know about caring for the poor. Can you imagine criticizing Jesus for not caring for the poor? 
That's what Judas did. And maybe the other disciples did the same. Well, now we have the crowds. This is the scene that you know the best, the Palm Sunday um, thing. Let's, let's go through the reaction. Meanwhile, this is the next morning. A large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there, and they came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So now, why is the crowd gathering? Well, it's very simple. They were curious. Now remember, there are crowds here, maybe as many as a half a million people in the extended area of Jerusalem. They've come in crowds, and they've heard that there's this man here who performs miracles. There's this man who has come here in town who the, the leaders want dead. Let's go, and he, he's, he's here. Let's go see him. And besides, he's the guy that raised that dude named Lazarus from the dead. Let's go see him. So they show up. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Now, by the way, in that society, the, the donkey was the, the, the beast of the king. When we think of, of, of a king, you think, no, you're going to ride a great white horse. Yes, the king would ride a great white horse when they went into battle. But when a king went into another country to make peace with that country, he rode a donkey. The donkey was the animal of peace that a king rode. And so Jesus said, I want you to go and get this colt for me. Untie him, bring him to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him the Lord needs him and he will send them right away. Now this wasn't just some chance thing. Because now Jesus is going to be quoting Zechariah chapter 9. Or at least, at least I should say the gospel writers are because they then figured out that Zechariah the prophet had prophesied that one day the Messiah would come and he would come riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so sure enough here now Jesus is going to ride on a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! They clearly now are saying, This is the Messianic King! This Jesus is the Messiah! He's here! They knew that the Messiah would come to the Mount of Olives, that now Zacharias said he would ride a colt, and now they, and they would throw palm branches, which is what they, they did before a king. And now the crowds are starting to say, this man is the Messiah. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? So the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So now the word has come out. He's a prophet. He's a miracle worker. He may be the promised Messiah. And the crowds are in an uproar because they are curious as to the identity of Jesus, which is often the case with crowds. Crowds gather around when something spectacular happens. Even when something bad happens, crowds gather because they're curious. And by the way, I would submit to you that that's probably one of the reasons why many people will gather around the story of, of, of Jesus, because they're curious. 
Even if they have no interest in commitment to Jesus, they're curious. They want to know, who is this Jesus? So maybe they'll come to church on Easter and maybe on Christmas because they're interested, they're curious. They want to know who is Jesus. But then the one we've left out is Jesus' disciples. What is their reaction? might surprise you. When he came near to the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all, for all the miracles they had seen. Now these are Jesus' disciples. These are followers of Jesus. These are not the curious crowds. These are people who do recognize that Jesus is the Messiah and they are elated to be a part of this procession. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Remember, those are words like the angels sang when Jesus was born back at Christmas time. Some of the Pharisees said to the crowd, uh, in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. I think that's the original rock music right there. Jesus said, rock music will come one day, and they will cry out. If you try to silence my disciples, the very stones will cry out who I am. And then, at first, his disciples did not understand all this. So the disciples are not getting it. They're confused. Only after Jesus was glorified, after the resurrection, did they realize that these things had been written about him, that they had done these things to him? So they were kind of scratching their heads. They knew at this point that Jesus was the Messiah. They had made that crystal clear to Jesus and other people. The crowds were still questioning this. The disciples knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but this is what they did not know. What kind of Messiah would he be? They all thought... He's going to be the king. He is going to be a political messiah. That's what they thought. And so they were confused. They knew part of it true. But there was a part they did not understand until after the resurrection. Then they put the pieces together. So they were clearly confused. <laughs> the more I think, the more confused I get. And they, of course, were thinking hard about this, but they didn't get it. They didn't get, what didn't they get? They got the part about the king. They got the part about politics. They got the part about God cares for us. They got the part about God saves us. But what they didn't get was the part about the cross. They didn't get that part. They couldn't get that part. To think that their Messiah would die on a cross? No, that can't be true. They didn't get that yet until after the resurrection. The significance of the cross. And by the way, as I said earlier, that's the part of the message of the gospel we're skipping today. It's the cross. We love to say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And we today in America say, well, of course he loves me. I mean, that is not the message of the gospel. The gospel does not begin with the love of God. The gospel begins with the holiness of God. God is holy and one day every one of us will have to stand before a holy God and give an account of our sin. We eliminate the cross. And here even his own disciples, they saw 
the political Messiah, the king, they did not see the suffering servant. Well, the last reaction is the reaction of Jesus. I put this little picture, that little chapel, I've been in it many times. It's a, it's a chapel that's called Dominus Flevet, which means Jesus wept. This is halfway down the Mount of Olives, this little chapel. And you see that window in the front that's kind of got a, a, a rectangle there? If you go inside this tiny little chapel and you look out that window, this is what you see. There's a cross, and there's the Dome of the Rock, and in the distance is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Jesus now, when he would have come to this spot, he would look, and instead of the Dome of the Rock there, there was the temple, which was much larger than the Dome of the Rock, much larger. And here he looked at the city of Jerusalem. And what does he do? Everyone's cheering, and he is crying. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you even you had only known the day, this day that would bring you peace, but now is hidden from your eyes, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And 40 years later, every stone in Jerusalem would be toppled. The whole city was destroyed and the Jewish people were scattered. Why? Because they did not recognize what was happening. And so, Jesus' response is his tears. And so, the end of this day enters, it ends in the following way. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethlehem, out to Bethany, rather, with the twelve. And there's the end of Palm Sunday. And so what? Here's the, this, the responses. The first response was the response of those who are threatened. Or you could, the other word I, I, I thought of was they're like cornered cats. When a cat is cornered, ah, now it's, it bears it, 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 its, its, its talons like a bird and, and they become threatened and they'll do anything to get out of the corner. That was the religious leaders. And then Mary, she was the one who was committed. At any cost, whatever it cost her, she was the one who was committed. And Judas, Judas was the one who, who was um, cunning. He was cunning. He was spurious. He was false. He's out looking for himself and trying to figure things out, but he was dead wrong. But he's the cunning one. And the crowds, they're curious. The disciples are confused. And what does Jesus do? He cries. And so I ask you, the very question that this text of Scripture and this day in the life of Jesus arises for us. Who is this Jesus? Who in the world is Jesus? Does he threaten you? He can. Is he, is he one that, that is worth every single sacrifice you could make, like Mary? Or are you someone who thinks you know more than Jesus? You can even correct him. It's fake. Are you like the crowds who just want to give dabble in Jesus? Dabble a little bit in Jesus, but not more than a dabble. Are you the disciples who just don't quite get it yet? 
Because when Jesus looks at how the people viewed him on this one of the greatest days in the history of the planet, he simply cries because of the five categories of people only one woman really got it that was Mary may we all be Mary's let's pray oh heavenly father May your Holy Spirit use these next never, uh, number of weeks for us at First Baptist Church and far beyond to focus our attention on this incredible life of our Lord Jesus Christ. How he lived and why he died and that he rose again. And I pray that these words and the words of the Holy Scriptures would go deep into our hearts as we contemplate who we are and how we view Jesus. I pray, Heavenly Father, that your you may bring us deeply into this season of Lent as we prepare ourselves for the glories of the resurrection. I pray, Heavenly Father, that we, like Mary, would find our commitment to Jesus grow in costly ways. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please stand. I'm going to end with a, a benediction that's kind of appropriate for Sheridan this day. The beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ is that he died on the cross for our sins. And though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as, as white as snow. God bless you.